meet the next host of Planetary Radio, and then enjoy a beer with a cosmologist this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I won't keep you in suspense any longer. Ladies and gentlemen of uh, my favorite solar system and the cosmos, it is my great pleasure to introduce my colleague of the last two years and proud to say a good friend, the new host, the incoming host of Planetary Radio. You have already heard her on the show. Here is Sarah. Now, I've been saying Al Ahmed, but we just spent five or ten minutes as you were trying to teach me the preferred pronunciation. How is Sarah Al Ahmed? That's Not pretty really. good. Nah, I don't think so. You're being kind. Sarah, <laughs> congratulations on uh, being named the person who's going to be taking over the show with uh, the start of 2023. Thanks so much, Matt. I am so over the moon excited about this, and it's been really hard kind of keeping it to myself these last few weeks. <laughs> but <laughs> I could finally tell everyone, all my friends and family, and share with the world that I'm going to be the new host of Planetary Radio. <laughs> I think I've told you that I was pulling for you all along. Now, you won this fair and square. We had hundreds of applicants, tremendously talented people, and we are grateful to all of them for going after this. But I was not a bit surprised, and I was very pleased to see you rise to the top. I know that the show will be in good hands, and I also know that over time... You will be bringing your own voice and your own approach to this in collaboration with our other great colleagues. And that's one of the reasons that I told our COO, the great Jennifer Vaughn, two years ago, that uh, I thought it would be time after 20 years to hand over the show to somebody new. And um, I agonized a lot over this. I'm in a lot less agony now knowing that you'll be taking it on. That makes me feel really good to hear. Um, your vote of confidence literally means the world to me uh, because I've, I've seen what you've done with this show. Even before I was working for the Planetary Society, Planetary Radio is a staple for our community, for all space fans out there. And it, it means a lot to have your trust in this, but it's not lost on me what a large thing this is. It's huge to step into the tracks that you've laid for for me and for all of us and i'm gonna do my best <laughs> but of course you will i've had your tutelage all this time i've had i've had a, a lot to learn from you so i'm very grateful and as this show is published we're just heading into a time of transition because i mean you are still wrapping up the very important work that you have been doing for the society Part of that is, I mean, you are listed on our website as the digital community manager. And that digital community that you've been devoting yourself to, it's still not out there for people to enjoy yet. What, what's the current status of that and, and, and what's ahead? Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this because this is something that we've been working on behind the scenes for almost two years now. We really want to put the society in the planetary society. We want to give all of our members a place to interact with each other and really share and learn and, and work together to advocate for space missions that we love so much. So what I've been working on very heavily for the last month is the production of our new member community app. We're not going to officially give out the, the launch date right now, but 
in the coming months, Planetary Society members will be able to log into the Planetary Society app on their phone and connect with us and all the other members. So behind the scenes, I have been working diligently to build that app, and I am so excited to share it with everyone. Not surprisingly, you're going to be handing that off to somebody else, a player yet to be named, uh, mm -hmm. because you're going to have your hands full with Planetary Radio. Um, <laughs> I am very excited as a member about the coming community, digital community, but I'm also excited that I'll be participating in it as, as I continue to be a part of the Planetary Society staff. We will start hearing more from you, I think, as we go into the next few weeks of Planetary Radio. You know, my original thought was that the handoff would take place on the 20th anniversary of the show. That's not going to happen now because you just have too much to, uh, to finish and to come up to speed on. But we're now looking at what? I think the first Wednesday in the new year is when you will uh, be taking over the microphone. New year, new host. <laughs> yep. But we'll we'll be working together over the next few months. So people will hear me here and there, but officially January 4th. Between now and then, we have some outstanding guests lined up for you. Some of them are people that I just have so enjoyed uh, talking with over the years. I've never met a guest I didn't like, but there are a few that I'm really looking forward to sort of wrapping up my tenure with. And you'll be hearing about some of those in the coming weeks. Um, I mean, I will mention one. I'm bringing together two of my uh, most enjoyable guests, Rob Manning and Andy Weir. Rob Manning, the chief engineer of JPL, and Andy Weir, well, you know who Andy Weir is, two of the most imaginative, creative, and funny people that I know. And we're going to put them together in December and talk about the importance of creativity in this uh, business of space, uh, space science, and uh, really maybe across more of life. That's just a little taste of, of what's ahead. November 30th is when we'll actually celebrate the, the 20th anniversary of the show. That's the closest show to the actual date. Uh, my last show will be December 28th, and we will do continue a tradition of uh, uh, looking back over 2022. And Sarah, I'm very glad that you will be one of the people we'll uh, have on that show as well. But like I said, we'll be sneaking you in uh, between now and then to talk about other stuff that's uh, going on uh, across the universe. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to learning behind the scenes how Planetary Radio gets put together and getting to meet all of these amazing guests that you have lined up. I'm, <laughs> I cannot tell you how awesome and fun this is going to be for me. You're going to have such a blast. As I've also said now and then, the selfish little secret of this show is that it really was just the excuse that gets me into talking with these people, my heroes, and all of them are. And I know you feel the same way about them. I mean, uh, you are at least as big a space geek as me. Do you remember when you first realized that you were a space and science geek? Oh, yes, I remember vividly. And honestly, my parents were kind of space geeks uh, when mm. I was a kid. They were really into Cosmos with Carl Sagan. And my mom started me really early on Star Trek. So I, I already loved space. But there was this moment, I was six years old, and you know we used to do show and tell in in first grade so our teacher would always start show and tell by bringing her own thing to share and one particular day i i think it was in spring she brought in a newspaper clipping talking about an exoplanet that they had discovered and i don't believe it was the first exoplanet i think it might have been the second exoplanet but 
it just opened up the universe to me. Mm. Before that, other planets, other worlds, other star systems, that was all something that I'd seen on television. But to finally know that it was real and that we actually had evidence of these other worlds, I, I lost my mind. I went home that night and I, I told my mom, you know, they found another planet outside of our solar system. And, and this is what I want to do. I want to be an astronomer when I grow up. I, I'm fairly sure most people thought I was going to give up on that at some point, but it stuck. <laughs> You know, everybody thought I was going to become a lawyer. I, I could have set them straight as well. I, I have been a, a space nut uh, for as long as I can remember. Space and radio, as I say. The difference, one of the differences between us is that you grew up and became a genuine astrophysicist and astronomer, two things that I will never be. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how you actually went into this as a profession? Well, I had to actually chase that dream out of little kid speculation into actual math and science. And that meant studying hard all the way through school, getting those scholarships so I could afford to go to a good university. And ultimately, I went to UC Berkeley and started my degree in astrophysics. To say that was challenging would be an understatement. I think yeah. anybody that, that goes into the hard sciences has those moments where they, they question if they made the right choice. But all of that math, all of that effort, all of the collaboration we had to do to get our lab work done, all of that was absolutely worth it for the amazing things that that I and, and my my other classmates were learning. There was never a moment that I finally went, I can't do this math anymore. Let's <laughs> let's quit. Because at the end of that, that tunnel of math was understanding about our cosmos and our place within it. It was it was magical. <laughs> What about the astronomy that you got to do? I mean, you did this as a professional. I did. I began kind of learning about exoplanet detection in my lab work at Berkeley using uh, the transit method. We were waiting for big planets to pass in front of stars. And back then we had to do it with one planet and one star at a time. So mm. I was using um, the Nickel one meter telescope at Lick Observatory to do this work. And eventually they sent up the Kepler Space Telescope, which took all of our uh, positions searching for planets out there, but I can't even be mad about it. It did it better than any of us could. <laughs> um, and then as soon as I graduated, I started research with Alex Filipenko, mostly data taking using the same telescope. I was looking for basically shiny objects, active galactic nuclei, supernovae, gamma ray bursts, the brightest things we could find so that we could then do research on them. Alex Filipenko, another of my favorite uh, past guests on this show, great astronomer, one of the uh, co-discoverers of, of dark energy, we should add, but uh, also a great educator, a, a great teacher. You went kind of in that direction in your career because you ended up at a place that I never miss a chance to uh, give praise to, the, the Griffith Observatory. Now's your turn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Alex Filipenko and a, a lot of the other educators that I've encountered over these years really inspired me. Doing the research, discovering things, that was amazing. But it, it was watching them and the impact they had on me and other people as they shared what they learned. It's one thing to discover a planet, and it's a totally different thing to tell a child that they're made of stardust. Mm. You know, coming out of all of that, I realized I, I really wanted to pursue science education, and Griffith Observatory was the perfect place for it. That that building, the people that work there, just decades of people dedicated to sharing the passion, beauty, and joy of space, and <laughs> and they are so 
so committed to it. And I've learned so much from them. I cannot tell you enough what a what a wonderful place that was and, and what a great, great experience it was for me. All the opportunities I had to connect with those wonderful space people that I held as heroes as well. You know, all of that time I got to meet all the guests, but also writing on their magazine, doing show production work for All Space Considered, their monthly show, and also teaching the kids field trips. I taught school field trips for 10 year olds for about five years there. Wow. And it was an amazing time. <laughs> Those kids love space. You mentioned All Things Considered, excuse me, All Space Considered, hosted uh, by the now retired, uh, terrific Laura Danley and, and other folks mm -hmm. there. And it was because of that show that you and I met about three years ago. I love to tell this story, but why don't you tell it? <laughs> yeah, well, it was near the end of 2019. And we invited you as a guest to come and talk about the LightSail 2 mission. And I remember being really excited about the LightSail mission as a concept because solar sailing is the technology that can take us to other star systems. I was so excited to hear more about this. So I helped produce that show and I ended up sitting down right next to your wife in the front row, <laughs> um, which was really cool. She was very nice and ultimately connected us with each other, introduced us. She came to me at the end of the show because she'd been talking with you and said, I have, there's this great young woman that you need to meet. Sure, that happened. In fact, there's a photo uh, taken, a little selfie taken on that yeah. night. I then went back to the Planetary Society and told people about this great person that I had met. And we really ought to steal her from the Griffith Observatory. Took a, what, about a year, right, for that to happen, for you to be pulled in. But it happened. And who knows how that could have gone. You know, I think about the last few years and how difficult it's been for everyone as our reality has changed due to this, due to this pandemic. I was working at Griffith and suddenly the building had to be shut down uh, for everyone's safety. And mm -hmm. it was in that moment when I was reconsidering my life's trajectory that I thought the Planetary Society, it's the, the perfect place. I would love to work there. And I remember talking to you that night about how to get a job at the Planetary Society. And I'm still completely baffled that you went back and, and remembered me. And when I was interviewing for the job at the Planetary Society, you remembered me then too. And it, <laughs> it was moving for me because you're one of my space heroes, Matt. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I don't know what to say to that, except that you have proven yourself indispensable already at the Society. Now you take on this great new challenge. And I just wonder about some of the things that you may have in mind as the show goes forward. I know people probably shouldn't expect to see a whole lot of change early on, but I'm hoping that, like I said, you bring your own voice and approach to it. I don't want to change things up entirely right off the bat because you've created this beautiful show. It doesn't need to be changed a whole lot, honestly, but I do want to find a way to share it with more people. I think it could do really well if we put it on some other platforms or even make mm -hmm. some videos out of it. The guests that we invite, we already kind of capture video of these interactions. So it would be wonderful to share with a broader audience. And maybe if we put it up on Twitch or something, we'll get more young people excited about space. Also, I don't know, I'm a huge nerd for, for sci-fi and pop culture and gaming. Maybe we can find a way to wrap in some more of the people who are sharing those things outside of scientific discoveries, the people that communicate those discoveries to everyone through pop culture. Maybe we can get some of those guests in. Not that you don't already. I mean, Andy Weir, <laughs> amazing. 
And some more of those kinds of people coming up uh, just in the next few weeks as well. I can't wait to see where it goes. Um, in the meantime, like I said, we enter into this period of transition. I have uh, been acknowledging on the show the hundreds of lovely comments that I have been receiving from you listeners out there. There is a new way to do that, not just to you know express your feelings about uh, the last 20 years of the show, uh, but also maybe to share a welcoming message uh, for Sarah. And I swear this was not my idea. Uh, it was the wonderful idea of other of our colleagues at the Planetary Society. Sarah, can you say something about this toll-free line that is now in place for people to call into? Yeah, this is going to be really fun. So if you want to leave a message for Matt, thanking him for his amazing service over the last 20 years, or you want to welcome me, I would be very happy to hear your messages. You can call our hotline, which I think is 1-844-PLANRAD. Is that correct, Matt? You are absolutely right. If you are um, <laughs> alphabetically challenged, it's 844-752-6723. But yeah, 844 Plan Rad is my preference as well. I think I was told uh, by some of our colleagues that it may not function well outside of North America. So we apologize for that. Of course, I still welcome anything that you choose to say at Planetary Radio at planetary.org, that email address uh, where before too long, Sarah will be opening the mail. We look forward to hearing from you. And I guess the idea, Sarah, is that we will then take some of these comments and air them on the show. Yeah, we have to find a good way to get everyone's voices in there as we celebrate your legacy on the show, honestly. I, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited to hear people's welcomes for me, but I'm even more excited to hear about the ways that your time on planetary radio has touched people's lives. So we're going to chop that up and we're going to put it on the show. And, you know, I don't know if it'll be one show all at once or just a little trickle of wonderful messages throughout the next months, but I'm really excited to hear what people say. Me too. Already very grateful for everything that has already happened and grateful to have uh, spent these 20 years that uh, I have enjoyed so thoroughly and grateful that my colleagues at the Society were part of the decision to bring in the woman that you've been listening to the last few minutes, the next host, only the second in the history, 20-year history of Planetary Radio. Uh, Sarah, congratulations once again, and I can't wait to uh, continue to work with you and see you take on more and more until uh, January 4th, when um, you are the one asking the questions. Thanks so much, Matt. And thank you for trusting me with the dream job. <laughs> Sarah Alamed or Alhamed. She says she's comfortable with either. We'll take a break before we head for a San Diego, California bar and a cosmologist confab. Hello, I'm George Takei. And as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. When you become a member of the Planetary Society, you join their mission to increase discoveries in our solar system, to elevate the search for life outside our planet and decrease the risk of Earth being hit by an asteroid. 
co-founded by Carl Sagan and led today by CEO Bill Nye. The Planetary Society exists for those who believe in space exploration to take action together. So join the Planetary Society and boldly go together to build our future. I haven't forgotten the downlink, our free weekly newsletter. I'm sure my next guest was as blown away as I was by the image on top of the October 21st edition. It's the Pillars of Creation, that star nursery at the heart of the Eagle Nebula, about 6,500 light years from us. But this is not your mother's Pillars of Creation, the one that the Hubble Space Telescope wowed us with in 1995. If you thought it was spectacular, you're going to love the new version brought to us by the JWST. Just wait till you see it at planetary.org downlink. Over at planetary.org itself, you'll find a wonderful new article by my colleague Jason Davis. It's the best brief explanation of where to find water on Mars I've ever read. Jason also talks about how we might someday access and use that water. We've talked with Brian Keating before. The experimental astrophysicist, cosmologist also works, is the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor at the University of California, San Diego, where he is with the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences. Brian also leads the worldwide effort that is building the Simons Observatory high atop the mountains of Chile's Atacama. Their hope is to literally shed light on our cosmic origins. After years of meeting virtually, all 300 team members were invited to gather at the university last July, and many of them made the trip. It was the kickoff event that brought me to the Amplified Aleworks Kitchen and Beer Garden in downtown San Diego. They gave the July 10 public event an irresistible name. We are cosmologists. Ask us anything. When I arrived, Brian was talking with an eager young undergraduate. And that frequency is where the microwave background photons are the brightest. So that's where we optimize the resolution or the refraction limit of the telescope. So, yeah. Courses do you teach at UC San Diego? Uh, I teach everything from intro to physics for pre-meds to all the way up through cosmology for graduate students. This past quarter, I taught cosmology for advanced undergraduates. And what's really fun is that a lot of them go on to intern in my lab or do research with me afterwards. It's really fun. I'm entering my third year in uh, astrophysics at UC San Diego. And uh, I'm looking at at a lot of the uh, cosmology classes, the uh, astrophysics courses. And uh, yeah, I'm beginning my the uh, mechanics sequence and the okay. electromagnetism sequence. Okay, yeah. Next spring, I'll be teaching again the Cosmology Physics 162. You're welcome to, uh, to enroll. It'll be fun to see you there. But in the meantime, yeah, go to my uh, website and check it out. Yeah, totally. Will do. Brian and several other team members then joined a panel discussion in the outdoor setting. Minutes after it ended, beers in hand, Brian and I had this conversation. Brian Keating, a bunch of cosmologists walk into a bar. I, I don't know the, the punchline for that, but there must be one. Yeah, I'm waiting for the rabbi, the priest, and the minister to show up, Matt. Hopefully they'll come by soon. Those are the proto-cosmologists. That's right. Yeah, they're all interested in Genesis or the Big Bang or any of these things, and we are welcoming all of them. Just like you, and just like, I mean, what brought everybody together here today, or maybe I should say this week? 
I think the the love of the universe, first of all, is palpable. People, you know, love learning about the cosmos, the universe at large, the planets, and 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 everything else. But in particular, we're about two days in advance of the release of the data from the James Webb Space Telescope, the very first light images and spectra from this magnificent device, and people are printing it everywhere, from the Union Tribune to the New York Times, uh, all over the world. People are getting so excited about this instrument that a few hundred scientists built, catapulted a million miles away from the Earth. And we on the Simons Observatory, the project that I co-lead with my collaborators, we're hoping to dovetail our data with their data. And in combination, this conjunction will allow us to unravel, unfurl the universe, as they like to say, in more precise detail than we really could have imagined even back when Hubble telescope was launched. It's phenomenal. I'm going to come back to that, how that dovetailing might work. By the time people hear this, those first science images from the JWST will have already wowed lots of us. You surprised me when you said the thing you're most looking forward to among those first images, we know we're going to see an image of one exoplanet, that you're looking forward to that more than some of the stuff that's a lot farther out. Yeah, stuff that's closer to what I do is the early universe cosmology, the first stars, the first galaxies to form. But actually, I kind of feel like maybe I get enough of that in my day job as a cosmologist. Uh, but really what excites me is the prospect that we might someday discover life on another planet. I'm not super sanguine that that would be in the offing. I'm sorry to disappoint the many listeners of the Planetary Society. I know that Planetary Radio, they love thinking about exo planetary species and civilizations. That notwithstanding, I do think that the, the, the images that were released from this WASP 96B, I love that name, I gotta get it on my license plate, that, those spectra really can set the stage for what we're about to see when the flood of data come in from the Webb Telescope. This is just the first light images and spectra, and the quality of the data that are being released just blew us away. And for us to think about, we're just extrapolating a few years from now, how much we're gonna know. Every single square degree of the sky that we look in, there's an exoplanet. And not only the exoplanet, we'll be able to see, we're not gonna see little cities there or little green men there, but we're gonna see the telltale signs, perhaps, of civilization, be it in the form of an agriculture or oxygenation or some event that's taking place on this distant exoplanet, if indeed life does exist. And to me, that is the most, that's the second most interesting question in all of science. The first being, you know, was there a single Big Bang? <laughs> and I'll bet, in spite of your well-founded skepticism, you would be the first person to cheer if uh, that data came back and said we're not alone. I would love that because, you know, for me, to know that we're not alone in the universe is a very powerful thing because I doubt, even if we do discover, Webb does discover eventually life or other, the many, many other collaborations, not just Webb, this is the golden age. Someone asked tonight yeah. about how do we react emotionally to the fact that we're living in a golden age of astronomy, exactly paralleling, although with 10 times better equipment, the golden age that previously existed in the 1900s. I mean, it's not so often that human beings, forget about scientists, live in an age where they have so much a wealth of treasure trove of data coming in from the universe uh, at large as we do now. So we're really blessed to live in this time. Uh, but yes, if we do find that there is evidence, I will be overjoyed with, with delight to know that because I think it will make our impression of our own existence that much more 
more much more stark to us. You know, we're living through a time of economic crisis, of political chaos, of of warfare, death, and destruction on Earth. And to think about, well, we did discover life potentially uh, in the next couple of years. Perhaps we will do that, but it won't be life like ours. You know, I think it's very um, uh, it's very parochial to think that we are the only form of life. Everything will be like us, but it will be maybe maybe subdominant to the type of life form that we are, and that will make us hopefully take our own life on Earth so much more tightly and be more precious and careful with our own tenuous existence on Earth. One would hope. All right, let's look a lot farther out and a lot farther back with the Simons Observatory. Tell me why so many cosmologists have gathered here and were able to come out and enjoy a, a beer or two and listen to this great panel. Yeah, so we are hosting in the middle of July, we're hosting the first face-to-face -face gathering of the 300 observers of the Simons Observatory, which is the world's premier cosmic microwave background observatory located at 17,200 feet in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile. Even higher than, I've been to 5,000 meters. You're even higher than that. Good higher. Lord. Yeah, exactly. We're a couple hundred feet higher than that. Uh, and that allows us this unrivaled glimpse, almost as good as being in space, not quite, uh, but for one hundredth of the cost of the Webb Space Telescope, or maybe even less. So we are going to this phenomenal observatory site in order to make these infant baby pictures of the early universe. Every one year we would gather in previous pre-pandemic times, we'd gather in person somewhere, either UC Berkeley, Princeton University, University of Pennsylvania, or UC San Diego. And this is the year that we had slated to be in UC San Diego, and thankfully we're able to do it in person after two years being on Zoom. So this is just a joyous occasion for us. We see people hugging each other. You kiss. I got kissed by my Italian collaborator, Carlo. Uh, I hadn't seen him in three years, and it's just you—you you become a family when you work. With, you know, I would say if you're not comfortable spending ten years with the people you're working with, don't spend one year with them. And these are such phenomenal people. We're gonna, I'm going to be spending hopefully twenty years with these people. We've already spent six, two more years before we get first light data from the Simons Observatory. And I hope uh, that we're funded for another five years after that. And maybe we, who knows, even beyond that. So it's just, uh, it is a family. And I always talk about that. My welcome address tomorrow at UC San Diego, where we host the project office, the leader, kind of the, the, the center of power, where we uh, disperse all the funding and administration uh, for the observatory. It's a full-time job for my, myself and my colleagues. That we will, you know, be setting the pathway to get those precious first light photons from this magnificent instrument built by 300 people who all happen to be enjoying sunny San Diego this week. So as we speak, the new issue of Scientific American has an article about these big questions about the beginning of the universe, the Hubble constant, and, and the fact that we still don't know, pardon the expression, what the hell's going on in some ways. You're hoping to help answer some of these questions, right? Yeah. Well, to quote, you know, the rapper uh, Biggie Smalls, uh, he used to say, you know, more money, more problems. But in this case, we have more problems, more money, because we we actually uh, are are able to look for these tensions. There are anomalies in physics that don't make sense to us, and the universe is created in such a way that to test the, the properties of the smallest particles known to human beings, the subatomic particles, the neutrinos, and dark matter, which we don't know much about, dark energy, we don't, we need the largest possible laboratory. Well, you can't get any bigger than the universe itself. So we're using the entire universe as an accelerator, as an atom smasher, if you like, as a collider, to experiment, to probe the universe at 
the highest possible energy scales. Conversely, probe the smallest possible link scales. So we are learning about these anomalies, these problems that may point to flaws in what's called the standard model of particle physics, the standard, standard model of cosmology. I like to look at that as Leonard Cohen said, the cracks let the light in. So where are the cracks in the standard model? The edifice, the artifice that we made up about the universe, which is a lot. We know tremendously precise details about the universe. We know so much about it that we know that it doesn't quite make sense. There are anomalies and those point to tensions that we can hopefully resolve with these instruments. So it's a golden age. The more crises, the more fun for scientists, I say. One of the things that blew me away, listening to your colleagues from some of these sister campuses, as some of the technical details, what it is taking to put together this exquisitely sensitive instrument and the kinds of things you have to achieve at, what, what is it, a tenth of a degree above absolute zero? I, I'm just marvel at the fact that humanity is capable of taking on these kinds of projects. It is, and it's not even just building it. You know, when we go down to uh, San Diego Bay, you see an aircraft carrier. It wasn't just built to be built. It was built to be going out and projecting power into yeah. the world, right? So there's an operating cost that we typically account for about 10% of the construction cost goes into each year of operations, meaning in a decade, you double the cost of the instrument. So I was calculating, and I'm gonna show this in my opening remarks tomorrow, we are equivalent to the cost of, say, a Boeing uh, 737 MAX 900 MAX. You know, it's a, it's a commercial passenger jet. That's about how much our observatory cost, all told. be about $100 million. That airplane costs $10,000 an hour to fly it with fuel and the pilots and insurance and everything else that maintenance. Our observatory costs a lot less to operate, but it costs about the same capital to build. So that means we can operate maybe longer than a Boeing 737 will last for. But when you think about how many parts are in a Boeing 737, how exquisitely they all have to fit together from different suppliers. We have scientists on all seven continents working on the Simons Observatory, speaking 30 different languages, eating different cuisines, my favorite thing to, to talk about. And when you look at the universe uh, that we're trying to unfold, of course it's much more complicated than this instrument. But I ask you, Matt, would you get on a plane that you designed and built yourself? No, of course. So you have to build in a lot of safety and checks and, and there are people involved we actually have to think about safety at high altitude as you mentioned wearing oxygen we have to bring diesel fuel up we have to have road maintenance concrete all these mundane things that I never thought as a 12 year old kid with my little refracting telescope looking up at the moon I'd be thinking about diesel fuel and some generator that's not working and that we need a maintenance plan for this type of uh, conveyor belt it's incredibly the mundane things but without the mundane things we don't build the instrument so it's incredibly complicated operating near absolute zero at atmospheric pressures pressures lower than one billionth of the atmosphere that we are enjoying here at sea level so for all those reasons yeah it's an incredibly complicated instrument machine if you will and uh, multiple machines that working in Congress together and, uh, and hopefully providing this unparalleled glimpse into the early universe. Just one more, the greater significance, the human significance of this. I think it's also wrapped up with why you wanted this group to get together today at a bar in downtown San Diego and reach out to other people. This has real significance for humanity and it goes beyond a lot of those terrible problems that we're dealing with across the rest of society. Yeah, that's right. So I think that, you know, science in general appeals to the, you know, it's the one thing that it used to be nonpartisan, you know, and maybe most of science can be free of politicization, but some of it has been politicized, it's true. 
Uh, and yet, and yet, astronomy, in particular cosmology, it's very difficult to politicize. You know, the origin of the universe, the Big Bang, and the and the distribution of matter and light and energy. And yet, I'm sure some people would want to do that. But but in any case, that type of polarization doesn't come into play in what we do. It creates kind of a safe space that we can enjoy and contemplate philosophical questions that were unanswerable up until now, basically this very day. And I always say on my podcast, I always say that scientists have a moral obligation to explain to the public in words the public can understand what it is that we're doing with their money. They give us this precious commodity that's fungible, their money, taxpayer to every single scientist here, every scientist you've ever known. There's no such thing as a privately trained scientist who didn't get anything from the government, which means from the taxpayer. So I believe it's our moral obligation. I strive to do that in my outreach efforts. But I've tried to inculcate that in my students and my colleagues as well, that we're giving back to the people. But really, we're getting more in return. You know, John Muir used to say, by looking out, I really realized I was looking in. We're looking out on the biggest possible skills. And conversely, we're learning more and more about what it truly means to be human beings. I saw that you ran out of uh, meteorites that you were handing out to people. So you started giving away books. We'll do that at the end of this show. We'll give away another copy. We've already given away one when you and I spent time a while back of uh, your first book, right? And now you have uh, one more that's in print, which I look forward to reading. You gave me a copy today. And then there's that Galileo project. I, I was going to let you go because I know there are people waiting to talk to you, but say something about these newer works. Yeah, so I was privileged to record an audiobook, the first ever by Galileo Galilei, uh, the famous dialogue uh, between, of two world systems, which is the one that got him imprisoned for the remaining nine years of his life by the Pope, who had formerly been. This is an incredible backstory behind this book. Um, and so that's an audiobook. It's 21 hours long. It's available anywhere you get audiobooks or on my website, briankeating.com. But if your listeners go to briankeating.com slash list, uh, they'll see an, uh, a form that they can fill out, and I will send them a piece of meteorite space dust from the early solar system, our planetary society, if you will, uh, that it used to be. So if you go to my website, it's only people in the USA, uh, uh, unfortunately just from shipping demands and so forth. But if you go there, and then you can check out my books uh, that I've written there. You can download a copy of the audiobooks, or you can buy a physical copy of the physical books. Uh, think like a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, into the Impossible and Losing the Nobel Prize or Galileo's Dialogue. But yeah, don't miss your chance to get a fragment of the early planetary system, <laughs> a.k.a. a meteorite. Thank you, Brian. Have a great time this week with your colleagues, and I sure look forward to uh, First Light from that amazing observatory. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to see you and in person without a mask. I love it. UCSD experimental astrophysicist Brian Keating at last July's We Are Cosmologists public event in San Diego, California. You can learn about the Simons Observatory and much more at planetary.org radio. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, my favorite astronomer. He's Bruce Betts. You haven't heard it yet, but I think you will enjoy hearing my conversation with our colleague Sarah as I introduced her as uh, the new host of the show. Yeah, I'm very excited about uh, Sarah hosting the radio show, and not just because we're getting rid of Matt. I mean, that's most of it, frankly, but uh, no, Sarah's great. I'm very happy with her choice. It's uh, going to be fun to hear her enthusiasm and knowledge, and no one, of course, can ever fill the shoes of Matt because they stink, uh, but... <laughs> God, I just, just I, try better to, and better. I, I try to compliment you, and then it just goes awry. You just can't. Your brain just isn't wired for that. But thank you. I know how you feel, and we, I miss, I'm going to miss you too. 
<laughs> Let me make it better. I've got a couple of these for you. Um, Stephanie Delgado in Arizona. I'm enjoying every last Matt Kaplan PB&J, Passion, Beauty, and Joy, before retirement. But that was followed by Ben Owens in Australia. Okay, Bruce, time to load up the laser bees into another Falcon 9 and see if we can put Dimorphos back into its original orbit. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone can knock an asteroid off its orbit. It's putting it back that's the real challenge. Laser bees being a project that uh, we funded some early research using lasers to vaporize the side of an asteroid and use the gas to push it. Uh, wow, we'll give that a thought. Give some thought to what's up in the night sky, too. We've uh, we just uh, had our partial solar eclipse seen by some in Europe and surrounding areas. Now we've got our total lunar eclipse coming the night of November 7th through the 8th. You excited, Matt? Total lunar eclipse? Yeah, I am. I want to see it. It's late though, right? Yeah, but I figure you party all night usually anyway, so you just need to crawl out, you know. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. I lost it on that one. About 11 UTC, which is about 3 a.m. here on the Pacific Coast and uh, 6 a.m. on the East Coast. So we'll see for the, the Americas, we will see the eclipse in a completeness over on the Western Coast. It will set during totality on the East Coast. It'll also be visible across the Pacific. It's kind of centered around the middle of the Pacific and over into very Eastern Asia and New Zealand and parts of Australia. Partial eclipse starts about two hours earlier-ish. So look things up. Go out on the morning of November 9th. That's the night of November 8th, depending on where you are. Check out the total lunar eclipse as the moon passes into the Earth's shadow and think about the profundity of being able to appreciate the three-dimensional nature of the Earth-Moon system as one orb enters the shadow of another orb with the light cast by a third orb. Orb, 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 orb. It's lost all meaning. <laughs> Three planets in the evening's tonight sky got Jupiter super bright over in the east, southeast when the sun sets and Saturn looking yellowish up above it and considerably over in the sky. And a little bit later, an hour or two later, reddish Mars. Man, it is getting bright and will continue to get brighter uh, through early December when Earth and Mars come closest in their orbits. Let us move on to this week in space history. An asteroid fact for you there. Not a, well, we got a fact. The first, the first asteroid close flyby by a spacecraft was this week in 1991 when the Galileo spacecraft flew by Gaspra in the main belt. I remember that faintly. <laughs> you were on the Galileo spacecraft, as I recall. Actually, you knew Galileo. <laughs> great guy, great guy. Insanely jealous of Leonardo, but that's okay. Everybody is. <laughs> DiCaprio? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> How about we go on to a random space fact? That was the Halloween random space fact. Thank you. So, Matt, I think you'll like this one. Even though it's a kind of a basic geometric fact, I'm guessing most people don't think how far is it to the center of the Earth. The distance to the center of the Earth is about the distance from New York to Berlin, Germany. An eight-hour to ten-hour flight, that's New York to Berlin. It takes much longer to reach the center of the Earth. You know, if there was a hole 
just going down to the center of the earth that didn't explode as a super volcano and kill us all. I wonder how long we have to figure this out. This, this is one for Randall Monroe. How long would it take to fall from sea level down to the, the center of the earth, the, the absolute center of the core? That's a that's an interesting one for you. I'd like to have an answer by next week, please. I think I can actually do that one as long as you allow me to do, you know, freshman physics assumptions. What if you put it all the way through the earth and then it would keep going and it would start oscillating? There's all sorts of fun, terrible, un terribly unrealistic physics, which is why I choose to move on to the <laughs> trivia contest. I asked you, as of now, October 2022, what spacecraft at Mars in orbit or on the surface has been operating the second longest Mars Odyssey has been operating the longest. And how do we do, Matt? I'm going to provide what I believe is the answer in the form of a poem from Gene Lewin in Washington. It's titled, Stand Clear of the Doors. It'll become obvious why. You can take the A train from Manhattan out to Queens or on an L in Chi-Town to Harlem Lake, you take the green. If you were in London, though, and the bridge you want to see, starting out in Stratford, you would take the Jubilee. But if you're off to Martian soil and expedience is stressed, the second longest operating craft would be the Mars Express. Wow. 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 <laughs> clever. That was impressive. Clever. We get, uh, yeah, very clever. And we get information about Earth public transportation systems as a bonus. Yeah, Mars Express. I, I thought we I wanted to throw a little love to Mars Express, an impressive European Space Agency accomplishment. Timothy Myers in California says, Mars Express, orbiting Mars just slightly longer than I've been enjoying planetary radio. It was launched in 2003, I read. Wow, we've been operating even longer than it has. That's true. But not as long as Mars Odyssey. I got a winner for you. Oh, good. That's usually part of our show. Adam Walks, a first-time winner, also in the state of Washington uh, with Gene Lewin. Maybe they know each other. He said Mars Express. He also said, keep up the great efforts in keeping us educated and affecting policy. Thank you, Adam. Adam, we're going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid that you can knock off course. <laughs> but we'll put it back. All right. In honor of our proto host, you know, like a proto star of proto planetary. In honor of our upcoming host, we're going to play Where in the Solar System? Where in the Solar System is there a feature named Sarah? Ooh. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Nothing on the Earth. Somewhere other than the Earth. Where is there a feature named Sarah? I love it. Sarah, I think you're barred from entering for the this one. You have until Wednesday, November 2nd, Wednesday, November 2nd at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get in on this one. And what we have for you is a copy of uh, the book by Brian Keating, Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, Lessons from Laureates to Stoke Curiosity, Spur Collaboration and Ignite imagination in your life and career. Ryan Keating, the astrophysicist uh, in charge of the Simons Observatory Project uh, out of UC San Diego, not far from uh, where I am right now. I think you'll enjoy it. I've enjoyed talking to you for what's up, Bruce. I think we're done. One quick thing, Matt. I want to introduce a new segment, the memories of what's up. We'll do a quick one. Hey, you remember when that Mars rover drove over us at some... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> conference. Fortunately, it was it was sojourner sized rather than uh, perseverance sized. Yeah, right. And it never went to Mars. It was just sort of a prototype. Speaking of more protos, uh, but that was fun. Yeah, we were. It rolled right on over us. Didn't even care. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up, look up in the night sky, and think about your proto. What? Thank you, and good night. That's Bruce Betts. He's a star. And you're going to hear more and more from that protostar, Sarah. I bet she'll be talking with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who will continue to join us every week here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its generous and loyal members. Don't forget to leave your message for Sarah and me at 844-PLANRAD. And then... Go visit planetary.org slash join to make us even more grateful. Marco Verda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, Ad Astra. 